Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. On December 10th, the European Union released a report in which it identified, as the report suggested, that anti-Semitism is getting worse and Jews are increasingly worried about the risk of harassment in the 12 countries that make up the Eastern uh, the European Union. Hundreds of Jews, perhaps thousands of Jews, questioned by the EU's Fundamental Rights Agency, said that they had been experienced a physical or anti-Semitic attack in the past year, while 28% said they had been verbally harassed. In the report, France is identified as having the biggest problem with anti-Semitism, but Germany, the UK, Belgium, Sweden, and the Netherlands also saw an increase in the incidence of the uh, anti-Semitism. On the day the report was released, December 10th, uh, 2018, the Italian police said they were investigating the theft of 20 memorial plaques commemorating the Holocaust. The small plaques dedicated to the members of a Jewish family, De Conciliaro, were dug out from Rome's pavements during the evening. The Vienna uh, based FRA paints a picture of synagogues and Jewish schools requiring security protection, a vicious commentary on the internet, in medium and in politics, and discrimination at school and work. And this report comes shortly after uh, a gunman murdered 11 people at a synagogue in the U.S. city of Pittsburgh. This report has certainly... Uh, worried Jews throughout the world. Not only does it uh, show that the in the aftermath of the Shoah and in some of the strong in countries where some of the strongest laws exist um, prohibiting anti-Semitic actions and comments, anti-Semitism continues to grow. Um, and that anti-Semitism grows in those countries where um, Jews have ancient history. Jews have long lived in France. Jews have long lived in Germany. Italian Jews have been there since the uh, 13th century. Um, and while there have always been incidents and episodes of anti-Semitism, the belief among um, liberal politicians in those countries and the Jewish community itself was that um, the, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, in the aftermath of the Shoah, anti-Semitism was on the decline. That turns out not to be true. This morning, I do not want to focus on the uh, survey um, of December 10th, but rather I want to take you, the listener, back in time to one of the first major incidents of anti-Semitism that gripped the world's attention. Um, in 1903, um, a pogrom took place in Kishinev, Russia. 
the aftermath of that pogrom was unique and that it affected immigration to the United States, it affected immigration to Canada, and it affected how the Western world began to respond to issues of anti-Jewish behavior, and certainly of anti-Jewish government-sponsored behavior. With me this morning is uh, Angus Smith, who for two decades worked at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for th almost three decades um, as a specialist in terrorism and anti-terrorism work, as well worked in the field of uh, white-collar crime and organized crime, but has a great specialty for the literature and history of Russia. Um, he is going to chat with me this morning about a book entitled Kishnev by Dr. Steve Zipperstein of the University of California at Berkeley. So, Angus Smith, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you, Rabbi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so perhaps you mm. can begin by telling us a bit about this pogrom and then telling us why this pogrom um, is somewhat unique in the annals of all the pogroms mm. starting from uh, the Crusades onward. Sure, and, and I, think, I think that's actually a, a very good place to start because it would be a, it would be a mistake to, to see what happened at Kishinev in 1903 as, as somehow an aberration, as somehow a single event. Um, the the pogrom as a as a as an in, I would say an instrument of of repression against the Jewish people, as a particularly violent instrument of of repression and and revenge, um, has a, a very ancient history, as you say, going back to at least the Crusades, and uh, and a very ancient history, particularly in Russia. And in and in Eastern Europe, in countries like Poland and Lithuania, what's now Belarusia, Ukraine, and so on, um, it, it's actually the word pogrom is derived from the Russian word for thunder. Um, what happened to Kishinev was in Easter of 1903, um, the. Gentile, the Christian population of Kishinev, actually led by members of the Russian Orthodox Church and particularly seminary students in Kishinev, um, inflamed with stories that, that, that the Jewish community of, of Kishinev had actually killed two young Christians to bake their blood into Passover matzah. Um, the, the ancient Christian... Jewish blood libel. It's called the blood libel, exactly. And blood libel has a very specific meaning, and, and, and it is the, the belief that, that, that Christian blood is required for Jewish ritual. Um, they rose up, and it was essentially th a, th a prolonged three-day attack on the Jewish community of Kishinev, um, which was largely consisted of poor working people, um, and by the end of it, the community had been destroyed. The buildings of the community had been destroyed. More than 50 people had been killed, and several hundred women had been sexually assaulted, often by Russian men who were neighbors, um, often by Russian men that they had known as children, 
Um, there, there are many, many stories that emerge from Kishinev of women who were being sexually assaulted by men, and they would call out to them by their, by their Christian names, asking, begging them to, 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 to stop. A pattern of using uh, sexual assault exactly. that continues to this day in many of the areas in the world yes. where there is um, hatred this becomes a weapon of control and of power. Yes, exactly. Um, we don't have time this morning to list all of the countries um, where this occurs. Um, so the Jewish population of Kishinev is basically destroyed. Yes. Um, and what makes this pogrom, as opposed to the Chemlinitsky pogrom of the 1880s or the pogroms, um, other pogroms in Russia, uh, sui generis? I'd say um, mass media. Um, this was, 1903 was uh, the time, I would say, of the sort of the first flowering of, of what we could call the 24-hour news cycle. This was the time of the famous uh, Hertz and uh, Hearst and, and Pulitzer newspaper chains who were vying with each other for these big stories and big scoops. So almost before the, the pogrom was over, the dust was just settling, um, the Hearst chain, particularly the so-called yellow press, had reporters on the ground in Kishinev. And the Jewish press also had reporters on the ground in, in Kishinev. And, uh, and because of you know, developing modern technology, such as the telegraph, they were able to get these stories out to the world very, very quickly. And, and, and for some reason, I mean, who knows why these kinds of things get traction, but the story and the plight of the Jews of Kishinev absolutely riveted the world and particularly the American imagination. And I think that it's, it's probably especially important because, um, you know, to go back to the idea of the, the weaponization of, of sexual assault, I mean, this is something that's happened since the very dawn of history, as we know, but this is the very first time that it was actually discussed openly in open public fora. And the great Hebrew poet Chaim Bialik wrote what's arguably one of the great Jewish poems of the 20th century called The City of Slaughter. And uh, City of Slaughter actually addresses itself primarily to this question of sexual assault. Bialik is, uh, was uh, born in uh, Russia. This is pre-Soviet Union days. Um, and then, um, and wrote in Hebrew primarily and became known as kind of the poet laureate of the state of Israel, um, though there are others who would challenge whether his poetry was really Zionistically oriented. Now, there's always a little bit of controversy right, about, about these titles. Um, so the world is captivated by this attack on um, a small Jewish community in the Ukraine? Yeah, it's, right. like, it's actually Moldavia. So right. it's right on the borderlands where Russia and Ukraine and Romania meet. Right. So the world is captivated by this. And how does the world respond? Well, it's actually very interesting because um, it's uh, certainly in the United States. And that's, I think, where the bulk of the, the kind of the, the, the sympathetic response was. Um, People came together very, very quickly in things like fundraising drives, in things like sort of information campaigns, 
Um, and and a very very quickly a kind of a, a lobby group form that was not primary not not made up completely of Jews. It included representatives of many many immigrant communities, who were actually able to lobby the White House and to lobby the Congress of the United States to actually change U.S. immigration laws and to lift the restrictions that had been imposed on Jewish emigration from Eastern Europe. And so consequently, in that period from 1903, right up until about really the beginning of the First World War, um, there was a, a huge wave, one of the great waves of, of Jewish emigration to, to the United States. So what I can say is that, is that unlike, say, um, in the 1930s, in the lead up to the Second World War, the United States stepped up. They really stepped up. So do, do you... And your understanding of world events, or does uh, Dr. Zipperstein, in his book, offer an opinion about why um, you have this radical, uh, radically different response? 1903, Americans of all stripes um, are incensed by what they hear. Um, and rally in support of Jews and push the government to um, open the doors to an embattled community. And uh, not long after that, less than 50 years later, um, the president of the United States is fairly mute on the subject. And Americans, uh, um, the first America first movement um, wants to disengage um, from Europe and wants nothing to do with the problems of Europe. And certainly um, Canada is no different in that sense um, and do not open the doors. So what's the hypothesis here? So actually, it's interesting because Zipperstein does not really explore that in the book. But I think it, it, is, it is one of the, one of the, one of the great questions that emerges from this, from this book and from the whole, the whole, in the, the whole sort of chronology of the, of the Kishinev pogrom. And, and I would say that you actually hit on the difference right there. America in 1903... Um, the president was Theodore Roosevelt, and and you know, and and in some ways, Roosevelt, you know, was a was a was an American chauvinist. I mean, he sort of invented the, the or, or you know, came up with the whole notion of speaking softly and carrying a big stick. Um, you know, manifest destiny. The Caribbean is an American lake. Nevertheless, um, to Roosevelt and Roosevelt's cabinet. America had a place in the world, it had a role in the world, and it had an activist role to play in the world. And therefore, if bad things were being done to people, even on the other side of the globe, then America had a responsibility to step up and do something about that. I mean, we should be clear that America was not always... um a moral giant. No, its intervention in the Philippines. Well, this is, is not one of the great uh, moments of American moral behavior. Exactly, um, and that which it did in Central America um, also could be categorized as um, more than just colonialism. I agree. But here, um, Theodore Roosevelt did express um, that American exceptionalism. It, and it is about American exceptionalism, and it is about that, that 
that notion, I think, that is really one of the founding myths of America or the founding notions of America that goes back to, you know, William Bradford and the Plymouth Plantation, that here we have, you know, the shining city on a hill, the light unto the world, and so on. And I think the difference is, is that so, so Roosevelt, the first Roosevelt, was operating in a, in a very different country, in a very different world. The second Roosevelt, Franklin, as you say, you know, was, was trying to find the balance between all of these America firsters who wanted nothing to do with Europe, who wanted nothing to do with Europe's problems. I mean, Roosevelt wasn't even able to mobilize Americans and to get into, you know, to get into the Second World War until there was actually an attack on American soil. Right. I mean, the sinking of the Lusitania, Mm -hmm. a British ship, um, being sunk by German U-boats um, with the loss of hundreds of Americans didn't motivate uh, Roosevelt and Congress to get into the war. Yeah. So yeah, and and so I think the other the other thing that's important to remember about America in the 1930s is that America, not unlike America today, had a very very powerful what I would call extreme right wing. Um, uh, lobby and and more than a lobby. I mean, the American Nazi Party was very powerful. Um, the the Deutsche American Bund, as it was called, which was essentially a Nazi party, and uh, and people like the radio personality Father Coughlin, who was constantly sort of fulminating against against the Jews. So it was a very it was a very very different time. And I think that the second Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, um, um, it. it he was functioning. He was functioning in an environment in which it was it was pretty much impossible for him to to respond to what was going on in Europe because everybody knew what was going on in Europe by 1938 and 39. It was virtually impossible for him to respond to it in the way that his predecessor, the first Roosevelt, had. So, it's a fascinating conversation to try and understand the difference in American response and perhaps even in world response. But returning to Kishinev itself, what makes this event? Uh, so you've identified that uh, technology allowed the world to know about the event and to be exploited for the purposes of the sale of newspapers or for the um, expansion of media power. Um, And you've um, discussed that um, Roosevelt had a different perspective on American response to tragedy in the world um, and how America should help its um, downtrodden. Um, And you've alluded to the fact that, of course, America in 1903 was a country of immigrants um, and people had deep roots in their homeland. Even I, it's interesting, actually, that one of the first kind of big popular responses, fundraising responses to, to the Kishinev pogrom was not in the Jewish community in New York City. It was in the Chinese community. And one, it's not even Eastern Europe, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what else separates Kishinev and makes it worthy of our consideration? Well, I think I think the other the other 
the other thing that we need to remember about Kishinev to kind of take it back to to Russia and to take it back to its cultural context, you know, is 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 this kind of deeply, deeply rooted tradition of of anti-Semitism that that Kishinev sprang from, and uh, and you know the 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 pogromchiks as as they're called in in Russian and in Yiddish who were who were who were rampaging through the streets of Kishinev and through the ghetto in Kishinev. You know, we're very much being egged on by 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 prominent media figures um, in in Kishinev and elsewhere in Russia. Um, there was a certain amount of government complicity in it, although probably not as much as po- sort of popular wisdom or conventional wisdom would have us believe. Um, Who was the czar? Uh, it was Nicholas II. So it was the last czar. It was the last czar, and he and his predecessor did allow for a moment of um, liberalization. liberalization. known as the Tsar Liberator. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, for the Jewish community and other That's communities. Right. He, he, actually, he actually sort of softened, softened the, the laws that required Jews to live in the Pale of Settlement and so on. So Nicholas II, as you said, the last Tsar. The last Tsar and deeply uh, reactionary. Right, So, and it's often forgotten who he was in the aftermath of the 1917 revolution and how he and his family were uh, eliminated and exterminated, right? And a bit of sympathy and empathy goes out um, for his demise. Yeah. But prior to we, that... We, we need to remember who Nicholas II exactly. really was. And so... But I think the other, you know, something else that came out of Kishinev that's very, very important is that one of the the media figures, the newspaper, the local newspaper owners, uh, uh, newspaper editors, was a guy named Pavel Khrushchevin. And Pavel Khrushchevin, in the immediate aftermath of Kishinev, with the help of a couple of other people, actually wrote and published a scurrilous little document, which is still has wide circulation today, called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a, is a complete forgery, but it purports to be a, a series of documents that were have kind of been found in various Jewish locations that set out the precise Jewish plan for taking over the world and subjugating particularly Christian people and bending them to their will. And I would say that probably every, every, not only every anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic conspiracy of the 20th century, but I would say that virtually every major conspiracy theory period of the 20th century probably has its origins in the, in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Protocols of the Elders of Zion is still, as I say, in wide circulation. Unfortunately, um, particularly in the Arab world, where it's, it, it, it is a perennial bestseller, um, in in uh, in every you can walk into any bookstore from from Morocco to 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 Iran and find multiple editions of it, but it still has a great deal of traction, um, particularly with with um, uh, right wing um, you know the alt right here in in North America and sometimes even with the left as well. And do you have a sense that there's a connection between the writing of the elders uh, the protocols of the elders of zion and its publication so shortly after kishnev and the events of kishnev or is the connection to the world response and and in a sense 
is the Protocols of the Elders of Zion a uh, reactionary statement to those who want to help the poor downtrodden Jews um, and and to indicate that, look, they deserve to be killed. Yeah. And right? Because you think they're poor and they're really peasants. But we want to tell you that they're just the tip of the iceberg, that beneath these poor peasants are the people who are trying to run our lives. Is that the connection? That's the connection. And, and it's interesting, you know, that, that one of the first, I, I guess, proponents of America First um, was none other than than you know that great American hero Henry Ford, right? And um, and and Hen, you know the great and you know genuinely an innovator and all of that kind of thing. But Henry Ford was actually was actually the person who paid to have the protocols pu- pu- translated into English and uh, and paid to have them published and distributed very widely in the in the United States. So that and so that was not only not only uh, kind of added fuel to this America First fire, but 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 kind of linked the America First movement in many a number of fundamental ways to this sort of need to protect ourselves as good Americans from this vast international conspiracy. It's so easy to leap from Kishnev to the modern era and to see some interesting parallels about America first and um, the fear that's generated um, by events far away, um, Syria um, and other um, Middle Eastern countries that um, may appear to give pause. Um, and certainly in Eastern European, as I began this morning, talking about the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, before our show ends, I just want to give you one more opportunity to identify if there's anything else that our listeners would find interesting um, above and beyond everything you've said about Kishnev. I think you, you know it's not not so much about Kishinev itself, but I mean I think I think it's important to to remember um, how deeply you know our tendency and it's almost our our natural our innate desire to kind of identify other people as somehow problematic, how deeply ingrained that is in us, and and how and I think how deeply crippling that can be, and so when I see you know when I look at at, at the United States where I see you know uh, immigrants from or or refu- even refugees from from Central America being characterized as drug dealers and rapists. When I look at Europe and I see I see refugees, desperate refugees from places like Syria being characterized as criminals, being characterized as terrorists, I don't see that as any different from the kind of mentality that fed things like the Kishinev pogrom, hundreds of pogroms before that, and pogroms after that as well. Well, on that upbeat note... <laughs> I want to thank you, Angus Smith, for sharing with us this morning the issue of um, what's called anti-Semitism, which is a hatred of Jews based not on religion, but on kind of a racial perspective of which the Protocols of the Elders of Zion um, expand upon. Um, and the initial notion that this was precipitated by seminary students thinking it was, um, 
getting close to Passover and there needed to be Christian blood to make matzah, you have the two um, approaches to disliking Jews. The initial religious approach because of them not being Christian and the more modern approach of the conspiracy, mm. of the Jewish conspiracy to control and, the world. And that it's not just that they're not Christian, it's that somehow they're not human. Right. Um, remains with us today, unfortunately. I want to thank you. I want to recommend to you, the listener, um, the book Kishniev, a fascinating exploration of a moment in history and its meaning, uh, as you've heard our conversation today, the lessons that we can take from that uh, event in which only 50 people were killed, but hundreds of women were sexually assaulted to events today where 50 seems small. But we should remember that we have shootings uh, all over the world in which 50 um, is um, a small minimum number from those who are oppressed by violence. Um, thank you again, Angus Smith, for joining us this morning for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a rebroadcast of our show on iTunes as a podcast or by tuning in to the CHRI website and hearing it then. Shalom and have a good morning. Shalom.